0: That even when his disciples would soon give up on him, that Jesus would not give up on them. That even when his disciples would soon, not soon after this meal, would abandon Jesus, would forsake him, that Jesus would not abandon them. That even though they stopped thinking about him and their concern for him, Jesus never stopped being concerned for them or thinking about them. What love Jesus has for them and even for us today. What love God has for for us today, that even us in our poor, in our sinful state, in our shame, in our guilt, through our mistakes, through our victories, through every doubt that's ever come into our mind, every broken heart that we've had, every desperate prayer of help that we've cried out to God, through every one of our seasons of life, God's love for us has not changed. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Well, here at Refuge, like I said, we've been going through um, the Gospel of John, and we've called it the Simple Gospel, and um, one of the beauties of going through this gospel, and Andrew has mentioned this before, um, but it's it's really to see that the theme of this whole gospel, you know, and if you look at each of each of the Gospels that we have, the four that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're each, they each depict Jesus as a, um, give a, a certain theme or a certain characteristic. I believe Matthew gives it as Jesus' is king, sees him as, as, as the king, the promised king, the Messiah. Luke sees him as the son of man, sees his humanity, the fact that God came as a human. Um, Mark sees Jesus as a servant. See him as as the servant leader that he came to serve, to seek and to save the lost. And what's unique about John that's different is that while those other three gospels focus on his humanity, the gospel of John really narrows in on his deity, on the fact that he is the son of God. Actually, the the key and the theme verse for this this book is John 20, 31. I have it up here on the screen. Um, John 20, 31 John writes here and he says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so, here in this study, chapter 13, you know, like I said, we've been going through it for a really long time, for a year, you know, it's kind of hard to you know, to go through something like this because there's so many good passages that you just want to camp on. You don't want to overlook, you know, and especially, you know, as we pray, you know, for each and every one of you guys that the Lord would speak to you guys and, and would move powerfully in your life. It's hard to just skim over some of this stuff of who Jesus is. But here in chapter 13, we're in an interesting part. It's a transition in this book. The first 12 chapters that we looked at just to kind of give us some context here, to kind of catch us back up to speed. I know we, we took a two-month break from Thanksgiving, I believe, and we know this is our second week back here on Thursdays. Just to kind of like refresh our mind you know, um, and what's been going on here. The first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John, they span three years. okay, Three years of Jesus' ministry. While, as opposed from where we're going to start today, 13 and on to chapter 21, the end of the book, spans only several days of, of Jesus' life. So the first 12 chapters twel- um, are three years, and the last chapters here, John kind of really takes his time, and we see the, the last several days of Jesus' ministry here on earth. It's a transition even from people's unbelief, the, peop- the crowds and the, and the people's unbelief intensifying, while on the other hand, we see the disciples' belief growing. In the first 12 chapters, Jesus presented himself publicly to the world, through miracles and through signs, and here in chapter 13, Jesus will begin to present himself privately through self-revelation to his disciples. And so we're going to see that here in chapter 13. But I wanted to start off by asking you guys this question here. What answer would you give if somebody asked you, what does good leadership look like? You know, what does good leadership look like? What does it look like, a leader that you want to follow? Someone that you can, in a sense, stake your life after, that you can kind of commit your life to following after, an example, a pattern. What does that look like for you? You know, I think for some of us, it, it may be different. There might be some different things, you know, oh, you know, I want them to be charismatic maybe, or I want them to, you know, to be very strong and very, you know, like, just just very, oh, just intimidating, or, um, but... Actually looked this up, and some um, on, I looked this up on Google, and some of the key characteristics of a leader that were listed there when I looked this up were honesty, good communication skills, confidence, and a sense of humor <laughs> in there <laughs> to follow. And you know, while we can look even at the corporate world, you know, for some of us who were working jobs. And we see the leaders that are there, maybe some of them are great, and we're like, man, I love my manager, my boss, they're awesome. Maybe some of us, man, you know, you, there's, some, there's some, you know, advice, some critique that maybe you could give to your bosses, and by some of the shaking heads I see in here, you probably agree with me. Um, but even the corporate world notices the importance for good leadership. I mean, they make, they spend tons of money on these conferences to make people, some of their employees, into great leaders, and in their eyes they seem to have perfected this, what a good leader looks like. But for us as Christians, what does Jesus teach us? Since we as Christians who are here today, and we in a sense call ourselves to follow after Christ, we don't necessarily follow after the mold of this world. We don't necessarily always wanna look so much like the world, but what is, how does Jesus lead? What does the Bible tell us? Should the church look different in leadership? than the world, or should it look like the world? Should it have a corporate model? Well, Jesus tells us here in, in chapter 13 a very key aspect to good leadership and models, models it here. Keep your fingers there in John chapter 13, and um, if you wanna turn back to Mark 10 in your Bibles, this will just kind of, we'll, we'll kind of spring from this and then jump back to John 13. So keep your finger in John 13, turn to Mark chapter 10. I don't have this one on the screen, so you're going to have to read it in your own Bible. Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus says here in verse 42, says, Jesus called to, him, to them and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles or heathens in a sense, they lord it over them. They lord that power over them. And of the great ones, they exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be what? What does it say in your Bible? A servant. So whoever wants to be great, Jesus says, if you want to follow the model of greatness, according to him, he says, you got to be a servant. And whoever wants to be first, to come in first place, who doesn't want to be in first place, right? You know, like my dad taught me, you know, sec, you know, second place is just first losers, and so who doesn't want to be in first place? If, and Jesus says here, hey, if you want to be first, you must be slave of all. And then he gives us the example of what that looks like in himself in verse 45, he's, and he says here, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so according to Jesus, we should look different. There should be a difference. And so back here in John chapter 13, what we're going to see is Jesus give us this example of what this looks like in probably one of the most dramatic ways. Okay, and I've listed this out here. kind of just came to me while, we were, while I was playing worship And playing on that cajon. And by the way, you know, if if you ever get asked to teach a Bible study, don't play cajon before. Because you're all super sweaty and your hands are just hurting. And like, it's just like, (laughs) especially in like a fleece, like, it's not just like, I was like sweating up there. And I was like, "Ah." and then, and then God spoke to me and wrote in my hand in the middle of service. Um, But um, so, so what this is going to look like listed out verses one and two, we're going to see. Love spoken to us. And then verses 3 up into 5, we're going to see love displayed or love shown. Or sorry, rather than from that 3 to 11. And then from 12 to the end, we're going to close in verse 17, we're going to see love sent. So love spoken, love shown, <laughs> love sent. That's what we're going to see today. And so as the scene opens up here, I kind of want to paint this picture for you. The disciples found an upper room where they all could celebrate this Passover meal with Jesus. This is a a big feast for the Jews, okay? It was kind of like, I think I heard some commentator say, because there are so many Jews that flock to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover meal, one of these feasts. Um, I think he said, it's like if we combine 4th of July, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's all into one holiday. I mean, you think about all that traffic, right, that we experience here in Southern California, when so many people out of town. Like, it was that times like a million in, in Jerusalem. Jews would be coming from all over, really, the known world to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover meal. And as all these many Jews would be flocking to Jerusalem for this feast I want you to kind of find yourself sitting there with the disciples, all right? In the upper room, at a low table, you know, because they didn't have, you know, chairs. They would sit at low coffee table, almost like settings, and they would recline on pillows, and they would, they would sit laying down. And so you're sitting there, and you can almost hear the busyness of, the out, of, of other feasts and other meals taking place throughout the city, and you can hear the commotion, and there's that anticipation within you, like, oh, man, I guess, I, you know, this, I can't wait to have this meal, to enjoy this. And so we read in the first two verses, it says, Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. We'll stop right there. So Jesus here knows that now is the time. We talk, um, Andrew talked about this last week. For the first 12 chapters, Jesus had been continually saying, the hour's not yet come for me. My hour has not yet come. He kept repeating that. Every time a miracle was coming, we remember it, in the first miracle Jesus did, turning water into wine, and his mom was like, you know, they ran out of wine. Jesus, you need to do something. And he's like, woman, my hour has not yet come, you know? And he wasn't saying that, you know, like in a derogatory way. Go listen to that study, and you'll find out exactly what he was meaning through that. But he kept saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But if you look here in verse 13, we see one of the first times as well in chapter 12. But here in verse 13, we see the first time it says here, Jesus knew that his hour had come. What is that talking about? What did that mean fully? That Jesus was going to reveal himself in glory. And so as we transition in this gospel, Jesus knew that close to 24 hours from this meal that they were having that he would reveal his glory to the world and how would his glory be revealed not as the Jews were expecting as a conquering king who would destroy Rome but rather as a suffering servant who would die on a cross Jesus knew that in his head less than 24 hours I want you to kind of even put yourself in that picture imagine if somebody told you you have 24 hours to live what would be going through your mind Would you be nervous? What would you want to say to those around you, those closest to you? We're going to get a picture into that in these next couple chapters here, and even here in in chapter 13. But the first thing that we see here, just like I I told you guys before in these first two verses, we see the love of God spoken to us. What we see here first is a contrast in these first two verses. And the contrast is this, between the love of Jesus and the hatred of Judas. The hatred of Judas. On one side, you see Jesus, right? He loved his disciples, it says there, even unto the end. And on the other side, we see Judas. And the Bible tells us that within his heart, he had already made the decision to betray his master. And he's sitting there eating this meal with him, not yet spoken, has not yet spoken about it, but in his heart, he knew that he was gonna betray Jesus. The contrast of love and hate. Thankfully, we know love always triumphs, but here when it says that when Jesus loved his disciples to the end, there in verse 1, I love the way the NIV puts it, and it puts it a little bit clearer, and it's the NIV translates that and says that he loved them to the uttermost, that Jesus did not just love these disciples until his life was over. He's like, all right, I got 24 hours with you guys, and so Come and get the love, because it's going to be gone. <laughs> you know and That Jesus wasn't, in a sense, only loving them to the conclusion of his life. But rather, we see in, that, in, that, in this phrase that his love has no limits. His love is everlasting, as the Bible teaches us. That even when his disciples would soon give up on him, that Jesus would not give up on them. That even when his disciples would soon, not soon after this meal, would abandon Jesus, would forsake him, that Jesus would not abandon them. That even though they stopped thinking about him and their concern for him, Jesus never stopped being concerned for them or thinking about them. What love Jesus has for them and even for us today. What love God has for for us today, that even us in our poor, in our sinful state, in our shame, in our guilt, through our mistakes, through our victories, through every doubt that's ever come into our mind, every broken heart that we've had, every desperate prayer of help that we've cried out to God, through every one of our seasons of life, God's love for us has not changed. That just as the Bible tells us in First Timothy, that even when we are faithless, that he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself, that that is who he is, that even when we turn our backs on him, just like these disciples would abandon Jesus, that Jesus would never abandon you. Jesus would never abandon you. He will never give up on you. You know, I love hymns. It's one of the reasons why we've been doing hymn nights here um, for refuge. We've kind of been trying to do them every so often. I love them. They're just so full of great truth. And one of my favorite hymns, Talking about this, puts, puts it this way: the hymn writer says, Bind, he says, Lord, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Man, that's one of the most honest hymns in the world. Man, my, Lord, my heart is prone to abandon you, God. My heart is so prone to choose myself over you, to to stop thinking about you, to choose my ways above your ways. Thank you, Lord, that you do not give up on me. Bind my wandering heart to thee. How comforting is it for us today to know that even in our wandering, that God loves us to the uttermost, that Jesus loved us to the uttermost. And you know, I really believe, you know, with the group of people that are in here, that some of you in here, you needed to hear that tonight, that you needed to hear that tonight, that God has not given up on you. You know, that some of you maybe you came in here and you felt like it's 2020, you know, coming close to the end of January and. All of my New Year's resolutions are, I've already destroyed them all. Like, they're all, <laughs> I gave up. <laughs> you know? I was just talking with Brian earlier. I was like, and we were saying, like, we gave each other a high five. We're like, yeah, we're not in it alone, man. We both gave up already. <laughs> Our New Year's resolutions just crashed, you know? <laughs> Maybe you came in feeling like that, you know? Maybe spiritually you're like, man, I want this year to be a really, I wanted to get grounded with the Lord. And then you found yourself messing up, falling into sin, turning your back, wandering from God. And you came in here and you're like, has God given up on me? Well, the truth is that God has not given up on you. That his love for his disciples, his love for you is to the end. And it will see you through to the end. Just like Paul writes in Philippians 1.6. I have this verse up here. Paul here says this, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus. Isn't that awesome? He's the one that began it. You didn't start it. He began it in your life. And so the burden is not on you to see it through. The burden is on him. And his word tells us, gives us the promise, the assurance that he's going to see you through. He's going to see you through that. Whatever season of life you find yourself in, maybe it's a season of quietness and you haven't heard God's voice in a while, he's going to see you through it. He will complete that which he started in you. He's not like me where I tell my wife, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to work on that. I'm going to build that. Our house does need a you know, a farm bench for the table. That sounds awesome. We'll build it with that all you know. And it's been like, how long? It's been since we've got married. (laughs) I still haven't done it. I haven't completed the good work that I promised him. Uh, You know, thank God he's not (laughs) like me. And he just gives up. (laughs) That's convicting right now to me. Um, But we can be, just like that verse says, we can be confident. I love that. If you want to put that back up there, that verse, we can be confident in this. Okay, we, it's not like, hey, you can kind of like, oh, you can maybe hope, in a sense, like we use that word hope, like hope that it happens, hope that God finishes, you know, cross your fingers, maybe if you live the right life, he'll complete it, if you come to church enough every Sunday, he'll complete it, if he, rather, in a sense, we can be confident that as we follow after the Lord, no matter what season of life, the valleys, the mountaintops, that he's going to complete the work that he began in us. And everything that we're about to read through, in these 17 verses and really it, on to the end of this, this book is going to stem from that right there, the love of God. The love of God as seen through Jesus. Okay? So we're going to see that. And like I said, we, we see the love of Christ. And it's so sad because in verse 2, there's that contrast of it. It says, During supper when the devil had already he put it in the heart of Jesus, Gary, at Simon's son, to betray him. It's really sad here. We see that Judas already had it in his heart, you know. And this kind of struck me. I didn't really think about this, but you've got to think about, put yourself in, the, in, in this place like Judas had walked with Jesus for three years. He had seen the miracles. He had heard the teachings of grace, of forgiveness, of the heart of God. He was one of the ones that passed out the multiplied bread and fish. He was in the boat when he saw Jesus and Peter walking on water. You know, but yet we find him here, betraying his master. What a contrast that is from loving to the uttermost to really a temporary religious act that, that, um, that we see in Judas where his heart really had it made Christ king. He had it made Christ king. And so moving on, we saw love spoken and then in verse 3 on to 11, we'll see love shown. Verse 3, if you want to read with me, it says here, Jesus, knowing that his father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin, a bowl, And he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So we see Jesus do this really radical, I mean, remember what I said? What would you do the last 24 hours of your life? Jesus here does one of the most radical things here. And notice in that first verse, in in verse 3, how it says that, he knew that the Father had given him everything into His hand, and that He had come from God and was going back to God. I wanted to talk about that just real quick. That Jesus had divine authority and commission. In a sense, He was in control. He knew exactly what was going to happen. It wasn't like in that moment He's like, "Oh, what Judas is going to betray me?" And like God was like speaking to Him through like a you know in His head, and He's like, and it was all just starting to play out. Like, no, Jesus had known all of this. Had, was well aware of what was about to happen in 24 hours. And so I, and I really believe that John put this in here to, to let us know that Jesus was in full control. He never, from throughout, from here on, do you see Jesus out of control of the situation. Even though it might seem like it, he is never out of control. I, lo- I like what David Guzik, talking about this, what he says, I have this quote up here. David Guzik says this, he says, Jesus was about to face the agony of crucifixion and the terror of standing in the place of guilty sinners before the righteous wrath of God, the Father. At the same time, Jesus went into this situation as a victor, not as a victim. He could have backed out at any time he wanted to, but because the Father had given all things into his hands, he didn't. He didn't back out. Knowing all of this, he submitted to the will of the Father. You know, And I think even to, what's really cool is the gospel of Luke gives us a little bit deeper picture of what's going on with these disciples. Why is Jesus washing their feet? It's kind of like a random, like, what, Jesus, what are you you doing? But in, in the gospel of Luke, we get a glimpse of what was really going on in that room before Jesus washed their feet. In Luke 22, verse 24, while they were up there, it says that a dispute arose in the upper room among the disciples as to what? Which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest? Can you imagine that? You've been training these guys for three years, and the night before you're about to be crucified, they still don't get it. You've been teaching them about what it means to be a servant, what it means to serve others, to love this world as God loves the world. And the night before he's about to be crucified, they're arguing with each other about who's going to be the greatest. I mean, the disciples struggle with pride. We see it throughout you know, throughout all of them, throughout the story, the gospel. We see it all, all throughout there. And as they're arguing, ar- sorry, arguing, you know, you can almost picture this in your head. Amongst their arguments, they're like, oh, me, it's me. John's like, no, it's me. Peter's like, oh, no, no, no. And then as they're making this loud commotion, you can almost watch the master, Jesus, rise up. And he be- takes his- off his outer garment, wraps him around. They're almost kind of like, what is he doing? He stoops down and begins to wash their dusty Clay-covered, worn-out feet. Okay? In the Middle East, it's a very dusty place. If you've never been there, you know, it's very dirt in the sense of there's dirt everywhere. And back then, there were no pavements. There were no brick roads just yet there in Jerusalem in the sense that there was most of the common roads there were dirt. They were dirt roads. And depending on the weather, you know, you either had to walk through inches of dust or... Slop through the mud and clay to get to where you needed to. All right? And so you're like, well, I guess that's a, that must be all right, Zach. They're probably wearing some high top, you know, boots, some LL Bean, you know, boots that just don't let any of that water in, you know, or whatever. No, they didn't have that. Rather, instead, the only thing that they had was, was small, thin pieces of leather at the bottom of the soles of their feet that were stitched with straps to secure their feet around. So it wasn't even as sold as your rainbows sandals are, okay? Not as comfy as those are or protective as those are. And naturally in this culture, before a gathering was to take place, guess what they would do is they would take they would bathe. Okay? It was kind of common for like people back then to bathe once a week. And so if they were coming to a gathering, you know, whether you you know maybe some of you are like, I don't know if I can last that long, maybe some of us dudes are like, that sounds awesome. You know, I can't wait for the next guy's fishing trip so I can go on another three days, four days and not shower, you know? It was amazing. You know, maybe, maybe not for some of you girls. But um, guests, before a gathering, they would bathe. That was just common courtesy. But yet, even after they bathed, they had to walk to the event. And as they walked to the event, what, what would happen? Their feet would still get dirty. So even though they were clean, their feet would get dirty. And so as they entered into a house, normally what was customary there is there would be a bowl of water and towels and a, and a servant who would wash your feet before you went into the house into the room. And and this servant who washed was like the lowest servant of the house. Not like the one that's like, you know, in, in the kitchen making the food. Not like the one that gets to, you know, like babysit the kid and you and really just gets to mess around, you know. No, this was like the lowest form or the lowest um, place for a servant to take was to be the foot washer. The one who would wash the feet of those that would come in. You know, and like I said, that, they would lay at low tables. And you're like, why did that feet wash matter? Well, they would lay at low tables. And since they were laying there lying down, their feet were showing, okay? And <laughs> I mean, you can picture in your head, maybe some of you don't because you don't like feet, you know, and you're like, that's disgusting. The fact that you're saying the word foot so much, Zach, is grossing me out right now. <laughs> you know? But um, the lowest servant of the house would, um, the low servant of the house, would wash before the, the guests entered the room. And so no doubt the disciples, even in their argument of who's the greatest, as they're up there in the upper room, that none of them even humbled themselves to stoop down to take that place, to wash the other disciples' feet. None of them felt the need to do that. Maybe they would have been like, yeah, I'll wash Jesus's, but Peter, I ain't washing yours, dude. You're a fisherman, and like, dude, like, pedicure have you ever heard of one like bro like seriously you know (laughs) but instead they were too busy thinking about themselves arguing and we see Jesus rise to the occasion and he teaches us this lesson of greatness by example takes that low place you know and what strikes me is that like Jesus was their master he could have easily been like Peter you're doing it all right Peter, you know, you always say the wrong thing, so, dude, you're washing the feet. Or maybe, maybe he was like, you know, John, you never do anything. You're always in the back. It's always us, you know. You, or, or maybe even Judas, knowing that he would betray him. Like, Judas, do something good for once, okay? <laughs> you know, like, wash our feet, you know? Like, but no, Jesus doesn't. He bends low, and he does it himself. Talk about gospel humility here. He, he saw a practical need and he didn't even question, just did it. Didn't ask, just went and did it. A practical need fulfilled it without question. You know, and, and the word that John uses there in verse four to describe this, in the Greek, it's actually pretty interesting. They're all in this dramatic sense. In, in, he writes it in a sense in like a dramatic staccato sentences. He says it like, he rises, he takes off, he pours, and he washes. He, can almost, he almost paints that picture that way, of it's like just, they're all watching him, almost like you can hear a pin drop. It's quiet, it's hushed down, and Jesus is washing their feet. Before the cross, Jesus wasn't thinking of himself. He was thinking of others. I have this quote from F.F. F. Bruce, this guy who was a British biblical scholar And here he says the form of God was not exchanged for the form of servant. It wasn't like God was like, all right, I'm gonna be a servant now, and then I'm gonna go back to being king and God. But rather, it the form of God was revealed in in the form of a servant. It was a rare declaration of the character of the Father Himself. You know, we say it all the time you wanna know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what the Father is like? How he, how he handles sinners? How he cares for those that are in need? How he, how he answers the prayer of the desperate? Look at how Jesus responded to these. And in this picture, we see that God's heart is a servant, it's to serve. Just as we read earlier, I had you guys read in Mark chapter 10 that Christ did not come to be served. He so could have easily just come and been like, You guys need to do my bidding. But he came to serve and to give his life. And why could Jesus do this? Because in verse three it says that he had security in this. He had security in where he came from, and he had security in where he's going. And I really think that that for us, to kind of apply it to us here today, where it kind of hits home, the way that we can serve well, other people well, is when we know where we came from, we know our testimony, we know where we were before God met us, and when we, and we know where we're going. And we know that this place is in our home. So we don't have to worry about our image. We don't have to worry about what other people think about us here. What people might say about us. What position we might be offered because of what we did. When we have that security. And let me tell you guys this. For a person that's safe and secure in the Lord, that knows that, where they came from and where they're going, nothing is below them for them to do. Nothing is below them for them to do. Serving God and serving other people should be something that's normal for us as believers. It's not something that's reserved only to Pastor Andrew or to those that are leaders at this church or to those, you know, that are, you know, that are missionaries that are out on the field. But rather, it's a call for everyone who says they're a Christian to serve, to serve. Serving is natural for the Christian. We should have that desire to be used by the Holy Spirit to change other people's lives. Like Galatians 5.13 gives a really cool picture of what service looks like. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom. God saved us. He freed us. But brothers and sisters, you can put that there, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So some of us can easily treat, you know, being saved, and, I'll, and I say it because I've done it, where I'm like, yeah, sweet, I'm saved, I can do whatever I want, and it's just rad, and just like, yeah, who, who cares, you know, like, and we forget that God saved us so we could serve, so he could use us. He didn't serve, save you so he could put you up like a trophy on his, on his you know, he's like, look at how awesome they are now. They're just going to enjoy life, and just, no, 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 no worries, no cares, you know, you, everyone gets to serve you, and just like, you're now my child, and you're one of, you know, no servants serve you, and you're just, you know, that's not what it means to be a Christian, or what we see in the Bible, and we see through the life of Jesus. It's to serve. It's to serve, and all throughout church history, we see that, true. Whether it be pastors risking their lives, smuggling Jewish children out of Germany during the Nazi regime, regime, or whether it be early Christians risking their lives as well during plagues of deadly diseases to care for and wash those who are sick. When you look at, um, when you look at church history guys, you see that we were made to serve. And that people throughout all of church history have been servants, have cared about others over themselves. And so Jesus saw this, nothing was beneath them. He took that initiative. And, you know, like I said before, people are either secure in this and they serve well, or maybe some of us are insecure in this and we don't serve well or we don't serve at all. You know, those who serve well or who are secure in this, you know, they're, they're the people that tend to like, they don't look for a pat on the back. You know, when they do something, they don't look to be promoted. They just want to serve God with their life. Whatever I can do, Lord. They see nothing as beneath them in comparison to what Christ has done. But yet on the other hand, those who are insecure about where they came from and where they're going, they're not really secure in that. Instead, they leave serving to other people. They're like, ah, oh, you know, I'm going to put it off. You know, when the pastor says, hey, can anyone stay up later to stack these chairs? You're like, I got to go to lunch. You know, like I have to be for lunch, you know, like or like we need volunteers for the children's ministry to serve. And you're like, oh, that's so sweet. And then you just leave and you don't do anything about it, you know, or <laughs> um, that's a cute picture of a kid up there. Oh, my gosh. And you don't. And people who aren't secure in this, they only give bare minimum. They look for excuses as why they can't. And that's not, the, the, that's not reflective of the heart of Jesus. You know, we're not above serving. And I think, make it practical in here, we're not above it, you know? Sometimes we can get all spiritual about it, be like, oh, it's not my calling. It's not my calling, brother, to pick up trash. But if you need help on the worship team, in the spotlight, give me a mic, and I'm, oh, man, like, you know, sometimes we can, just, we can justify it and be like, that's not my calling, you know, to do that. But, you know, I'll serve in this way, in a way that I want, but not in picking up trash. Staying out late to pray for someone, to counsel them. Cleaning toilets. You know, we don't have, you know, if, you, if you're new here at, at church, we don't have, in a, in a sense, like an on-staff janitor here. Before you come here to service, there are men and women that sacrifice their time to get here before you do, and to make sure that the toilets are clean, to make sure that the bathrooms are mopped, make sure that the chairs are set, trash is picked up, you know, there's nothing crazy, like, you know, the windows are wiped. There's this one guy, Mike, he washes the same window, like, I, I can, it's on the clock on Sundays, when I'm up there practicing, I see him go there and he just washes it, does it twice, spray, wipe, spray, wipe. It's like, he's so faithful in it. <laughs> there's people that do this, that serve this way. And maybe you're there and you're like, why is this important to me, Zach? Why is this important to us as as Christians? Talking about toilets and trash cans. Well, that's because God trains us in the toilets and the trash cans. (laughs) God trains us in the toilets and the trash cans. His word says that when we're faithful in the little, he will make us faithful with much. He opens up opportunities and doors of opportunity for us to be faithful in much. Because, you know, when we deal with people's lives, when you're in ministry, and you know, I'll say this from a standpoint of being in ministry, when you're in ministry and you're dealing with people's lives, sometimes it it looks like a toilet and it looks like trash. <laughs> dealing with, I mean, I'll be in all seriousness, dealing with sin and the messiness of it, and how it breaks apart families, how it destroys relationships, it destroys the relationship between kids and their parents, or um, Marriages, ministry is messy. It's not glamorous. It's messy. And if we don't have an eye for the smallest thing, like to pick up trash, we're not gonna have an eye to see the hurt and the stain in people's lives to minister to them. And you know what? I even think so as leaders for you know for some of us, and even for Pastor John, he models this very well. Leaders, we're not exempt from it. You know, we're we're not called to be celebrities. In the sense of, like, yeah, everyone does everything for me. Like, I'll tell you, you know, today, Pastor John is the first one to get into those toilets and to clean them multiple times. He models that leadership for us. And for us as leaders, and maybe in here, maybe you're a leader in some capacity in some ministry, you're not above that. Rather, the standard of service is higher for you. You know, I I always remember that story told of Pastor Chuck. You know, at, at Costa Mesa, um, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, when on a Sunday, there was a toilet that was clogged. You know, I'll let you kind of, you know, fill in the blanks with how that happened, but there's a toilet that was clogged, and like all, you know, at Pastor Chuck's church, you know, all the, all the pastors in there, they, they're in suits and tie, they, they dress very formal, you know, and all of them are standing out there, and they're like, what are we gonna do? We don't, you know, we called the plumber, the plumber's on the way, and Chuck comes in the bathroom, and he sees that, and Chuck takes off his coat rolls up his sleeves, and he sticks his hand in the toilet and unclogs it. I know it's like, whoa, that's disgusting. But talk about model of service. Nothing is below him. Chuck modeled that. Is anything below you? Is there anything like, i sir? but I don't know about that. I mean, that's convicting to me, man. Would I do that? I don't know. Like, But Jesus teaches us here that the way up is down. The way up is down, and we got to remind ourselves that. Got to remind ourselves that. And so, verse six through eleven. I'll I'll finish off through here, and we'll finish. We'll finish this off. It says that he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, "Lord, I love this. Don't you love Peter? He always says the stuff that you kind of like. You're thinking, but you wouldn't say out loud." You know, you ever had been in a class like that where you're like, I want to ask a question, but I don't want to be seen as and there's that one kid's like, uh, what does that mean? And you're like, ah, what an idiot. And you're like, but in your mind, you're like, I was asking that same question. Like, I wanted to. They, I'm so grateful for Peter. He's like just, he's he does, he's bold, man. He's bold. He's either like hot or he's cold. <laughs> he's either really right, and God's like, man, the Father has revealed that to you. Or like Jesus is telling him, get behind me, see? (laughs) It's like these two contrasts between Peter. And he's just so like, I love it. And and I love it because I think we can relate to it. We can relate to it sometimes. We see the humanity. We see the people that God calls to serve. They're they're not perfect people. You know, you don't have to be perfect to be used by God. Peter's a great example of that. But so Peter objects, right? In verse 6, he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And he says it with that emphatic. He says, do you wash my feet? And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, with he answers with that same emphatic. Jesus says, "What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards, you will understand." you know, um, Peter's like all tripping out. He's like, "Jesus, how?" You know, he almost is watching everyone else get their feet washed. He's like, "John, how could you let Jesus do that, man?" When Jesus gets to me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell him what's up. Yeah, I'm telling. He, this. And so he totally just lays it out, and he says that, and. Jesus tells him that statement, what I'm doing now you won't understand, but afterward you will. And I, I think that really speaks to us, especially today. I kind of wanted to pause there. You know, have you ever been in a moment in life like that? Where God does something in you and you're like, Lord, or maybe you're there right now and you're like, what are you doing, God? I'm trying to figure out the forecast of what you're doing, like to plan, to prepare. Because I want to be prepared. You know, like, We're like, Lord, why would you allow this to happen in my life? God, how could I lose? How could I be betrayed by? How could this, God, what are you doing? You know, some things that God does in in our life, we don't understand in the moment. But later we will. Later we we will. When did Peter finally understand this? You know, I really maybe, I honestly I think it was after he. he fell in sin. He cowardly denied Jesus, right? 24 hours after this, denied him three times. He said, I never knew the man to a child after the threat of a kid. He says, I never knew the man. Denied him. You know, that the, the, um, one of the gospels puts it so vividly where it says that at that moment, the rooster crowed, the light clicked, where, where Peter remembered that Jesus told him he would betray him. And it says at that, that moment, as Jesus was even on that, Stump being whipped by a cat of nine tails. It says that his eyes looked at Peter and their eyes locked for a second. And it says that Peter left and he wept bitterly because he felt the conviction of his failure, of his wrong. And that even after that, so beautiful after that, after Jesus rose from the grave, that Jesus sought Peter, right? When he told the women, he told them, I'm risen. He said, Tell the disciples and tell Peter. It's in, and it's in, that's, I believe that statement's in there for a reason. Jesus was like, make sure Peter knows. Because Peter's got to feel devastated. Jesus sought Peter. And he restored Peter. Applied the water of the word, to, in a sense, to Peter's denied feet. And you washed them and restored him. Some of you maybe feel that way. Man, Lord, what are you doing in my life? God, I denied you. I failed. Jesus seeks restoration he's a servant that doesn't just wash the feet of the disciples but even of Peter the one who would soon betray him and even Judas the one who wouldn't repent of it Jesus still stooped low and washed what what a heart of the father there and so Peter goes on and he says, right, he gets even crazier. He's like, he's like, it's a good idea to tell the Lord what to do, right? He's like, he's like, you shall never wash my feet. That's always a good idea. Tell God what to do. And Jesus answers him and he says, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. In a sense, Jesus is saying, this is who I am. If you reject this, you're rejecting me. I'm a servant. If you don't let me wash you, and a says, wash your feet, you're rejecting who I am. My, my personhood, in a sense, you know, And I think sometimes for us, surrender is the first condition of discipleship, right? We need to surrender. We need to let our pride down from following him. But sometimes I think a servant's heart, it's not revealed in how many things we'll do for other people. Like, but rather, I think a, a true servant's heart is even shown in us when we accept service to ourselves, right? Because when we serve people, pride can easily be there. Still, we can be like, yeah, that's right. You better say thank you, old lady, for moving your stuff. You know, I, you know, I deserve that. You know how you told me there was only a fridge and a couple of boxes, and I had moved four pieces of furniture of yours. And, you know, you know, I, you know I didn't experience that in the past. I never experienced that. That's not, um, you know, but sometimes pride can linger when you serve. It hides, you know, and you don't do it out of a pure heart. But when you receive service from others, oh, that's a little humiliating, huh? We don't like, oh, no, no. Hey, dude, you don't need to, don't trust me. You don't need to, because it, it breaks our pride down. We, it shows us that we need help. We need help. That, you know, William Temple, I have this quote. He talks about this, and he says, real quick, he says, man's humility does not begin with the giving of service. It begins with the readiness to receive it. Have you said no, maybe, to a loving brother who's been like, man, let me do this for you, and you're like, no, dude, no. No, you will not buy me Chipotle. No, you know, I will buy my own Chipotle, and you're like, All right, dude, you know, like, you know, your pride, you know, like, maybe sets in. Like, um, man's humility doesn't begin with not just giving service, but receiving it even. And we see it here, right, Peter? He's like, his pride's like, no, not me, Jesus. You never. But Jesus tells him, if you don't wash with me, you don't share part with me. And so, and then Peter goes the other extreme. He says, Lord, not my feet also, but my hands and my head. Don't you love Peter? He's like one opposite to the other. In verse 10, he says, Jesus looked at him. He says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he's completely clean. And if you are clean, he's, or sorry, he says, and you are clean, but not every one of you. He's talking about Judas there. He's saying, you guys, he's just saying practically, he's like, hey, if you're bathed and you walked over here, you don't need a full bath. You just need to wash your feet, okay? Let's be real, Peter. Don't be all super spiritual, okay? <laughs> you know, I'm just meeting a practical need, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but then he takes it a step further, and he takes it spiritual and he says, but he said, you guys are all clean, don't worry, but there's one of you, in a sense, that is isn't." And he's um, foreshadowing and, and prophesying of the one who would betray him, Judas. And in verse 12 here, so we saw love spoken, love shown. And lastly, let's close real quick. Um, love sent. Verse 12, he says, when he had washed their feet, and put it on his outer garment, resumed his place. He said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? I love it. 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then am your Lord and teacher, and I have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so Jesus gives a clear meaning to what he did. He says that foot washing teaches the lesson of humble service that each believer should chase after daily. Okay? And so I have a tub of water that we're going to bring out during worship as we close, and we're going to wash each other's feet. And so um, get ready. I'm just joking. We're not going to do that. I don't know if you've ever been to something like that, you know, maybe at a church. <laughs> don't worry, don't freak out. Jesus isn't saying, you know, you better start walking. You know, you're like, oh man, I need to get a pedicure now if someone's going to see my feet. Okay. <laughs> That's not necessarily, Jesus wasn't in, wasn't in a sense rep, saying replicate everything that I'm doing right now to the T, but rather he was setting a pattern, a token, an example towards Christian behavior that we should follow. So don't freak out here. We're not going to do a foot washing service here at Refuge. Um, that would, I mean, knowing Andrew, that would, we would never, we would never do that. Andrew is so, yeah, we would never. Um, <laughs> but rather, Jesus was saying, follow my pattern of service. Follow my pattern of service. You know, Peter thinking about this decades later, I can, I can imagine him kind of like it was clicking in his head, and he wrote in First Peter, as it was, he remembered this scene, and he check this out. He writes in First Peter. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The literal translation of that, clothe yourselves, in a sense, is wrap the apron of humility on yourself. No doubt Peter was thinking of Jesus as he took his outer garment and he put on the servant's garment. And Peter encourages us, we need to do the same to serve others if Christ the master served, who are we to not serve, you know? And if there's one thing that serving does, and what I, you know, is, is it humbles us. It reminds us what we really are. Because sometimes we can really get prideful and we can think we're better than we are, you know? We oh, no, 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 come on, I never, come on. No, really? I'm not going to do that. No, no, you know? I think it was Spurgeon who said this, I, I don't have the quote, but he said, man at his best is still man at best. And it's so true. Us, at humanity at its highest point, is still humanity. Flawed, sinful, broken. Don't think of yourself as greater than you ought to. But rather, practice and show this. I have this quote. D.L. Moody says here, um, The scriptures were not given for our information, but for our transformation Jesus said, hey, blessed are you if you do these things. This is not just for a, a cool Bible study. You get some cool information and be like, oh, that's cool. About Jesus says, do these things. Live it out. Live it out in your life. Let it transform you. Let it change you. Let it change your life. You know, I have some other verses but, and stuff, but I don't want to go too long. So I'll, I'll close with this one thought, guys. Is, um, you know, I think it's easy for us to, instead of being foot washers, we become foot criticizers. You know, I think it's easy for us to be like, it's easy to point out people's flaws, right? It's easy to criticize, to point out um, the wrongs in people, to say, oh man, look at that dirty. Oh man, that is dirty. like. They need to, oh, did you you see on Instagram what they posted in the story? You know, in the gossip, you know, did you? And it's so easy, including myself, to criticize, in a sense, like, dirty feet instead of seeking to wash them. And what I mean by that is to use the water of the word, as Ephesians 5 would say, to wash our brothers and sisters, you know, those of us that we know maybe are are straying away. They're falling away, and it's so easy to be like, "Man, that person, oh, you see, I can't believe they're going that far now." Rather than instead to humble yourself and to be like, "Hey, man, I love you. God loves you." To cover with love, to be like I think it was Noah's sons. You know when Noah got crazy and he got all drunk after the Noah's Ark. You can read it in Genesis but a great sign of humility from them. Noah's sons, instead of, he got all crazy, had a wild party night, and he was in his tent, and you can read about it, but his sons, it says that they walked backwards with a a blanket, and they covered him. Such honor, such humility, such grace to cover that sin. It's so easy for us to criticize and to not show grace, to not cover with love, because like I said in this passage, The love that we read in the beginning of Jesus loving to the uttermost, it stems throughout all of this. It was spoken to us, like we saw in the first two verses, we saw how much God loves us. It was exemplified to us, displayed to us, shown to us by Jesus stooping down, washing the feet of his disciples, and then it was commissioned to us by God, by Jesus. He sends us to say, you go and you serve. You go and wash, in a sense, those who are needy, those who are in need. Have that mind, as Philippians would say, have that mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, that even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, became so low by becoming obedient even to the point of death and even death on a cross, a criminal's death. I mean, Jesus humbled himself, got low, washed, but in 24 hours he would get even lower. He would be whipped, he would hang on a tree, and he would die to the lowest for us. And Paul, looking at that, tells us, says, have that mind that Jesus had in you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much, God, that you did go the full distance for us, Lord, that you were not looking at what was ahead. Father, as something to be despised, when you looked at the cross, God, you did not shame away from it, Lord, but rather you walked towards it confidently, steadfast. You came for a mission, Jesus, a rescue mission to save the world, to save us here in this room, Your love compelled you so much, as we read in John 3.16. It compelled you so much, it welled up within you, that you gave your Son, Father, for us. That we deserve the cross. We deserved to be put low. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the death that Jesus died. But yet he took our place, our substitutionary sacrifice. He took the place that we deserved and gave us the life that we didn't. We've been set free by your blood, Lord. We recognize that tonight. We are awakened by that, God. Forgive us for for those times when we can become so lazy in our walk, we can become so complacent in our walk that we aren't awakened, Lord, by, by the gospel, that the gospel doesn't prick our hearts, it doesn't convict us, it doesn't wake us up, it doesn't move us. God, forgive us for that, Lord, for not having those tender hearts, Lord, for not preaching the gospel to ourselves, to seeing our need for you every day, Lord. And forgive us, God, for using that freedom that you've given us in saving us and not serving others, those around us, our families, our friends, our coworkers. Lord, and not serving even, as as we talked about, Lord, the unborn. Lord, those in distant countries like Guatemala, Lord, those that are in need, that need you, Father, for not taking that low place, Lord. Forgive us, God. Lord, we want to be those people that are blessed and that are doing what you're telling us. So just give us, Lord, even right now in this moment. Lord, who is it that you're calling us to serve? Where is it that you're calling us to serve? We believe, Holy Spirit, that you speak even today through the prayers, through your word, and through to the hearts of your people. You're not a God that simply only speaks from this pulpit that you're a personal God, that you want to speak to everyone in this room individually. Speak right now, Holy Spirit. Comfort, God, for those maybe who came in here not understanding what you're doing in their life, not understanding the purpose of it, God. Comfort them with your love, Lord. Exhort us, encourage us that have maybe become, like we said, lazy in it, God, and we haven't serving. Encourage us, maybe some of us in here who have been serving in some of the most unseen ways and we feel as though we're neglected maybe some of us in here have been doing the same thing over and serving and we've been growing weary while doing good Lord, help us not to do that Lord, but to encourage ourselves in you, Jesus that you do see everything done, not just what's done in front of people but even the private things God, you see that and you will reward that one day Lord so just give us all that security Lord Thank you for your love.